Good evening. It's good to be with you this evening and to bring the word of the Lord to you. Let us turn in our Bibles, if we have them, to John chapter 12. The title of my sermon this evening is The Glory of God in the Passion of Christ. And we'll read from John 12, verse 12 to verse 36. John chapter 12 and verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went out to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing, Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there had heard it and some said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. Well, let us pray for the blessing of the Lord upon the ministry. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful passage. We thank you that you, the triune God, has made a way whereby we can be saved, that is through Jesus Christ. 
through his death on the cross, we can be saved. But it is only through the power of the Holy Spirit that our hearts can be changed to see the beauty and the blessedness of Jesus and his sacrifice. And so we need the power of your Holy Spirit to work in our hearts to see the redemptive power and wonder of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ reconciling us to the Father. We do pray that you'd be with us this evening, that you would help us to see the truth of these things all the more and that each one of us would go away this evening thinking that little bit more of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Or if we do not know him at all, turning to him in repentance and faith and being saved from the fate which awaits those who are in the world and of the world. We do pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I did my undergrad in philosophy. In philosophy, you hear a lot about a man called Socrates. Socrates. He was written about by another man called Plato. And Plato was followed by Aristotle. You may have heard of some or all of those. But Socrates, his death is reported by Plato. And what happens in his death is he has stirred up a lot of bad feeling in Athens. He basically goes around not really working, but just debating with people. And he cared about the truth. He never really claimed to have much truth himself, but he claimed to show when people were false. And he did. He, he debated with people. And he showed great leaders who thought they knew everything that they were often wrong. And what they thought they knew, they didn't actually know. And as often happens with that type of man, he gained a following among which demographic? Young men. And the leaders of Athens didn't like that. They said that he was leading the young men away. He was putting revolution in their hearts, teaching them not to respect their elders and betters. And so he was sentenced by the peculiar and interesting court at that time to die by drinking hemlock. And he did die. It's reported that he could have escaped. He had many friends in high places elsewhere. He could have orchestrated an escape, but he said, I don't want to escape because then the, that will make it look like I was wrong, like I'm going back on what I said I am willing to die for this truth. Socrates, if all that is true, was clearly a great man. You may not agree with him in all areas, but he was clearly a man of principle and decision. But is that how you view our Savior? If you're a Christian, is that how you view Christ? A man who dies for the sake of some truth. If that is truly our Savior, then we have an inferior Savior. What glory is there in that without some bigger purpose? Just dying for some truth. You may say it's honorable, and it is, but what does that do? What victory is there in a great champion of an order, for want of a better word, dying for the sake of the truth? It may do some good, but there's no absolute greatness in that. It doesn't bring about salvation. It doesn't bring about a change, at least not an everlasting change. If Jesus died merely for the truth, 
then how can we expect any better fate? He's no different to all the prophets who came before. He's no different to Isaiah and to Jeremiah and to Ezekiel and to Daniel and to all the prophets. And many of them died, didn't they, for the sake of the truth. But then he's no different if he just does the same. But that isn't the truth of the gospel. The truth of the gospel is that his death is the gospel. He didn't die for the sake of some truth. His death is the truth whereby we can be saved. Through his death comes the victory. He is not actually primarily the one who shows us the way, although he absolutely does that, but he is primarily the one who is the way. What does Jesus say? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is the glory of God in the death of Christ. And so I have two points today. The first is his determination to bring God glory. Let us view our Savior's determination to bring his Father glory. Well, look in verse 27. Our study passage is 27 through 33. Jesus says, now my soul is troubled. What is his soul troubled about? Well, as I think I said this, this morning elsewhere, a good interpretive tool in finding out things in the Bible is just to look back or forward. So let's look a little bit back. Just before this, in the preceding verses, some Greeks come wanting to see Jesus. And then Jesus starts speaking and he says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. What is Jesus speaking of? He's saying, a grain of wheat, if it doesn't fall to the earth, it's just, what? A grain of wheat. But if it falls to the earth, more wheat will grow and there will be true fruit. And Jesus is pointing to his own death. He's saying, I cannot live forever. I must go to die. This is the purpose of my coming. And his mind is on that. And then he says, now my soul is troubled. So what is his soul troubled about? It's troubled about his coming suffering and death. The word troubled is a very strong word in the Greek. Agitate, disturb, terrify. This was not just passing butterflies in his stomach. We might think of some terribly nerve-wracking times for people in the Bible or elsewhere. The, the nerve-wracking time for Esther as she's waiting to go into the king's presence. Do you remember that? And if he doesn't hold out his scepter, she loses her head. How nervous would she be? She kept on having times of fasting, didn't she? Because she didn't know what was going to happen. Those are great nerves. Or perhaps a new soldier going into battle for the first time on the front line. Never seen fighting before, and yet they now are going out. That's nerves, isn't it? Or David standing before Goliath. With what? With a great spear and sword? With some new technology and the best armor, the pathetic little sling, and a few pebbles. I would get nervous at that. Or the person in more contemporary example waiting for their test results to see if they do have that terminal cancer or not. In the waiting room. 
These are great nerves, aren't they? The martyr who has experienced great anguish at anticipating torture and humanly speaking certain death. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego waiting to be thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. And they don't go, God will save us. They say, God may save us. Well, he may not. These sorrows, these troubles, this anguish and nervousness, it cannot compare to that of which Christ is going through. Because Jesus wasn't just anticipating the horrible circumstances of his suffering and death. He was anticipating the greatest full-fledged attacks of Satan upon him. He was anticipating taking the sin of the world upon his shoulders. He was anticipating the very wrath of God burning against him on the cross. That cannot be equaled. No one on earth has been through that except when going to hell. Now my soul is troubled doesn't cover it. And Jesus moves on though. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. He's saying, shall I say, shall I call out to my father, please take this cup away from me as we see him doing in the garden of Gethsemane. But then what does he say in Gethsemane after that? But not my will, but yours be done. So he isn't truly crying that out. He, he is going through anguish, but he is saying, if it is your will, I will go through this. And Jesus then says, Father, glorify your name. His soul is troubled. Should he cry out to God to save him? No, he has come to earth for this reason. Father, do what is right. Go through with it. He humbles himself before the will of the Father in his humanity. Jesus says, Father, do your will. He concludes, do your will and glorify your name because I care more about your glory than I do about my own comfort. He is saying that he will do what he has been sent to do. What a determined servant. Determined to do the will of the Father despite the great suffering in view. And so what should we do in light of that? Well, we should praise him for his determination. As we see what he has done and the glory of his perseverance, that should cause us to get on our knees and praise him, should it not? To exalt him. That he would do that. He didn't shirk out of the will of the Father, but set his face like a flint and took the wrath of a righteous God towards sinners. Our Savior could not but do the will of the Father because of his devotion to his Father. And do you know, if we think about it this way, because Jesus didn't cry out in earnest, Father, save me, because he didn't truly say, I'm not going to do this, we can say, Father, save us from our sins. Father, save us from that judgment. Because he didn't cry that, because he did go through that suffering, because he did die, 
we can cry out, save us. And God will, because of what Jesus has done. And so if you have not cried that out, why not? Because if you do not, you will go through that suffering. You will spend an eternal fate paying for your sins. Cry to Jesus. And he can go in your place. Because he didn't cry it, you can. So most fool you if you don't. Let us praise Jesus for his determination. Let us praise him. For we can have the blessings of salvation through him. We can have the blessings of the fellowship of fellow believers, can't we? We can enjoy one another's saved company. We can have God as our true God, as reconciled. We can know him and we can commune with him. Praise Jesus, our Savior. But this determination of Jesus should also cause us to have a similar determination in doing the will of God. Do you react in the same way as Christ when sufferings come your way? <laughs> I know I don't. When sufferings come my way, it's all too easy. Disgruntled, disheartened. To think that it isn't fair. How can this be the will of God? Why should God have ordained that I should have to go through this? What have I ever done? I've been good. Sometimes we might even feel so disgruntled towards God that we sin because we've let our guard down and saying, well, if he's going to make me go through that, that temptation isn't fair. I don't have to resist that. Do you ever, if you are honest with yourself, seek to punish God because you don't like what he has in store for your life? Well, if he's going to make me go through this experience and that then I will sin in this way or in that way. If God isn't going to work with me, why should I have to? And surely we can say, well, this is of course wrong. It's understandable because we're only human. It is a human reaction. And surely sin done under these circumstances isn't as bad as sin done under others. Right? What if that was the attitude our Lord Jesus took? What if he said, this is too much. I shouldn't have to go through this. This is more than anyone has ever had to face before. This is not a decision I want to make. Where would we be? We would still be in the world. We would still be in our sins. We would still be hurtling like a meteor for our eternal judgment. But he didn't. So let us be invigorated by his example. Let us look to our Savior and say, I want to be more like him. I am going to persevere by the power of the Holy Spirit in Jesus Christ. Look to the blessings he has secured for us and let us persevere. This is only a short time of suffering. It's called an hour in this passage. It's soon over and we will be with our Lord. And so that's my first point, Jesus' determination to do the will of the Father. But secondly, how God is glorified in the passion of Christ, the passion being the suffering and death. 
Well, he's glorified in this, firstly, in the judgment of this world. Verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. What does this mean, now is the judgment of this world? Isn't that coming in the last days when Jesus will come again and roll up like a carpet the heavens and the earth and, and renew all things? Isn't it coming then? Well, of course it is. But clearly there's something that is meant here too. What he most likely means is that the event which will ultimately determine the eternal fate of each and, ev each and every individual of the human race is happening now in the very near future for Christ, for he is thinking of his death and resurrection. Let me explain that. The only sinners who will be saved are those who come to the cross, confess their sin, and receive the atonement, that is, the salvation, made for sinners. It is at the cross that the sins of those who would repent and believe will be dealt with. The wrath of the Father against those people in their sins will be put on Christ at this event on the cross. And that, so now is the judgment of the world. It is now that the sinners who are to be saved, their sins will effectively be taken away. It is happening at the cross. And it is also happening at the cross that it is the event which will determine the fate of unbelievers. For we, of course, are judged for our sins. But in a sense, the sin which we are truly determined by is, do you believe in Jesus or not? Do you believe in the cross? Do you have faith on him in the event of the cross? And so it is this event which will divide each and every human being, sheep or goat, heaven or hell, eternal bliss or eternal judgment. And so this is the most important question that any of us have to ask ourselves, isn't it? How is your relation to the cross? How is my relation to the cross? Have I repented and believe in Jesus for salvation? Or do I spurn that? And do I turn away from him? And do I see the sacrifice that God has made and reject it? For this will determine my eternal fate. It will determine your eternal fate. In a sense, we wish we could have every single person in the world in one room so we could ask them that question. We could explain to them the cross. For it is the most important question of our lives. What is our relation to the cross? Do we have faith or not? And if we do, we are deemed righteous through the blood of Christ if we have repented and believed in the gospel, let us be comforted because we are bringing glory to God in our lives and we have salvation in him and we are reconciled to our Lord and we will gaze on our Savior for all eternity. And so now is the judgment of this world, but also there is the destruction of Satan in this passage. 31b, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. It is here. It is now, 
at the cross, Jesus, when he is speaking, which is about to happen, that Satan will be utterly defeated. I feel like I'm in Genesis 3.15 a lot today. I was in it this morning as well. But that is where we hear the first promise of the gospel. That is the first promise of God that he will save his people. Genesis 3.15. I, Jesus speaks to the man and the woman. Sorry, he speaks to the serpent here after the sin has been committed. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Not massive fan of bruise, I think crush is more of an effective translation. Not because I'm good at the Hebrew, but because it reaches well. Crush. It is, there will be a time when the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And this is that time. The seed of the woman, Eve. We see in the Bible, don't we, it being narrowed down. It's, it's Eve and all her offspring, and then it's Abraham, and it's David, and then it's narrowed down, and Mary, and you shall have the child. And she has the child, and Jesus will crush the serpent's head, and he does it at the cross. What is meant by cast out in our passage, the ruler of this world will be cast out, means utterly defeated and vanquished. Through the death and resurrection of Christ, Satan has been defeated once and for all. And this doesn't mean that he isn't in the world at all, but it means that his power has been crippled and his fate has been sealed. The action which was to defeat him has happened and his hope has been destroyed. Do you see the devil was scheming and plotting even before Genesis 3.15, but definitely from Genesis 3.15, and it became focused. Where were the devil's schemes and plots being focused? They were being focused on the line of the woman, weren't they? Because he heard that promise. The seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman shall crush your head. And so what does he spend his time trying to do? It is to wipe out the line of the Messiah, the line that Jesus would come by, isn't it? Do we not see that with Pharaoh? Pharaoh who seeks to kill all the boys in Egypt, all of the Israelite boys under the age of two. Who do you think was behind that? was the devil. He wanted to wipe out that line. Do you remember a similar story a little later on? Beginning of the New Testament? Herod. He seeks to kill all the boys more explicitly because there is a king amongst them. And he doesn't want his power to be taken. Who is behind that? It is the devil seeking to crush the line of the Messiah. These are his strikes, his bruises at Jesus' heel. Over and over again, he seeks to destroy the line of Christ and then Christ himself. But the glory of it is this, is that Satan's greatest strike, the one where he most probably thought, I've won. Him and his forces of wickedness, we can think of them metaphorically celebrating. We put him on the cross. Look at him, he's dead. Isn't that what he was trying to do? Inciting Judas to betray Jesus. We have that specifically in the Bible. Sending him out, betray him, get him on the cross. He's now cursed. I've won. I've crushed him. But the glory of the gospel is this. That in that time, 
In that hour, the Satan's greatest strike at the heel of the Messiah, it is that exact time that is as if Christ raises his foot and smashes the serpent's head because it is in and through the cross that the devil is defeated. For Jesus does not remain dead, does he? The power of the Holy Spirit raises him from the dead. And he lives, having defeated sin, death, and hell. He lived that perfect life, didn't he? Did he sin? Did he fall? Did he turn away from his purpose? Did he say yes when the devil put before him all the kings of the world on that high place and says, you can have it all? He doesn't, does he? He is perfect. He is the man that none of us could ever be. He is the man that Adam wasn't. And in him, Satan was crushed. And so we can say, O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? The sting of death is gone, and the victory of the grave, well, there is a victory. But it's not that of the grave. It's the victory of Christ through the grave, isn't it? For he rose. Believer, your Savior has smashed the head of Satan. He has cast him off his usurped throne. This means that you can look Satan metaphorically in the eye and make him cower. Let him take no position of authority in your life. It feels hard, doesn't it? Our own sinful hearts, we don't even need the devil to tempt us. We'll do it ourselves. And we feel weak. We feel helpless. But if we're in Jesus, we have the power of his spirit. We have his example. Let us look to it. Remember your Savior. Remember what he has done. Seek help from him. And the devil cannot prevail. When he comes to seek to deceive you, when you are tempted to accept the deception, recognize the presence of the devil and make him leave through Christ. When you are tempted to believe through his deception that evil is good and good is evil. When you are tempted to go to the darkness of unbelief and secrecy for it seems comforting. Go to Christ. Look at him. Read your scriptures and have him blast open that darkness with his glorious light. And so we see, lastly, the exaltation of Christ in verse 32. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. This being lifted up, it is a play on words, isn't it? For it is speaking in one sense of the crucifixion where he's lifted up on a cross. But that can't be all of it, for that is really a tearing down, isn't it? That's not an exaltation. That's being accursed. That's being humiliated. That's being mocked. That's being ashamed. So, so what is happening here? Well, I believe it is to be found in what it is that is accomplished at the cross. Jesus' life and ministry culminate in the cross. Through his being raised up on the cross, he does what we have said. He takes the sin of his people, he destroys the devil, and he becomes the mediator between God and man. It's a picture, you see. As he is raised up on the cross, he is above the ground, is he not? Mediating between the one who is above and us who are underneath. Through his cross, we can go to God with boldness because Jesus has paid the ransom. He has given the sacrifice. Through being lifted up, it is nothing more than being taken down. 
But that being taken down leads to Christ being the mediator between God and man. We read of this in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5 to 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. So I did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of a cross. Therefore... God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus draws all men to himself through becoming the mediator. He draws at the cross the dying thief, the centurion, the women, and John. All types of people are united in the crucifixion if they are in Christ. For that is our identity, is it not? As Christians, we are followers of Jesus. And we are united in his crucifixion. It is at the cross that we see his true glory. And so let us look at the one who has been lifted. He has been lifted up for us if we are in him. So let us look upon him. Let us think upon him. And let us live. In the Garden of Eden, there was the tree of life. And there was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the tree of life was a tree where by eating it, you could have life. You could keep being alive. You could continue. You could flourish. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you eat of it and you surely die. I would imagine very possibly those two trees are close together, the tree of life being in the center of the garden, but perhaps not. But imagine that they are. And Adam and Eve, they eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so they bring death upon themselves and upon all who come after them. But Jesus is the new tree of life. Through him, we can have life. And so you can spend your life gorging on what you think is the pleasure of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Or you can raise your eyes and see Jesus, who is the true tree of life, and eat of his fruit and live. And so in conclusion, there is a voice from heaven in this passage which confirms Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God, and confirms that his mission as such was not for the benefit of Jesus, but for the benefit of the people. It may be so that they know and believe. So let me ask you, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Do you believe that he is the only way by which we can have forgiveness and be reconciled to God? Or do you believe he is just like a man? like Socrates, who died for the sake of some truth.
If you believe he is the son of God and his death provided a way for reconciliation with God, then repent, believe, eat of the tree of life and live in him and find your joy in him and praise him and exalt him and point to him. Do you believe that he defeated the devil and cast him off his throne? Remember then that by looking to Christ, we can persevere, not falling for the deceptions of the devil, but living in the light of Christ. Do you believe that it glorifies the Son and the Father for your salvation to be completed? If so, then have assurance. He will bring you to the end. You will persevere. And so, most of all, glorify the Father for sending the Son to suffer and die for us. Glorify the Son for his determination to seek the glory of the Father. And glorify the Spirit for changing our hearts so that we can see the glories of the cross and be drawn to it. Thank you.